Hello, this is Our Foundations, and my name is Joshua. Thank you for tuning in. Today's episode is going to be about government, and specifically a moral argument against government. When I say the term government, what I am meaning is what pretty much we all think about when we think of government. We think of the modern structure, the formalized structure of governance that rules and reigns over pretty much every country of the world today. That is what I'm referring to. I'm talking about that formal structure. I'm not talking about governance, or I'm not talking about any other form of government that doesn't exist. I'm talking about modern government, the way it is structured, fairly universally. There are multiple types. There are more direct democracies that exist in the world today. There are communist countries, and there are things that are in between, more on the socialist side of things. And the even though there are many different types of governments that are in existence, they all pretty much share some core common features that really define them as a government over their nation. I'm going to give you just a brief recap of all that we've talked about throughout this podcast on government in general, just so you can get the context of where I'm going and where this fits in. So first we talked about the origins of governments, where they came from. Then we talked about different types and how different governments have set themselves up over people and how they've ruled in different ways and the different forms of doing that. We've discussed that. Then we got into things like the corruption and conspiracies that have gone on inside of governments. And that has brought us up to the modern day. We just got done covering agorism. And that is, how do you operate and live your life in a way that's outside of the government? So you're not reliant on them and you are not supporting that. And so since we've gotten to this point, I felt like there was something that really hasn't been addressed. And that is the argument against government. Now, it's pretty obvious that there is corruption and I've pointed out plenty of examples of that and examples of conspiracies that have gone on. And I think we all know that in general, there is corruption. There are conspiracies. Government as a whole is fairly inefficient. A lot of times it's ineffective. There are a lot of issues with our government. And I say that as a citizen of the world. It's not just the American government. It is the government in the UK the government in China, all these different governments have plenty of failings and they do share most of these things in common as far as being fairly inefficient, uh, ineffective in certain ways, and they do not meet the needs and or the desires of all of their citizens. They meet the needs of some, probably the majority, and they meet the desires of some, usually the majority, depending on the country, but not all. And so what I want to do in this next series that starts with this episode is cover just government as a system and really assess that and look at that from a perspective that more than likely you haven't really dug into very much because it's really not something that most people think about and it's not something they talk about in school and it's not something that comes up in casual conversations, usually, unless you're talking to an anarchist maybe. But this podcast is all about systems. It's about the systems that are in our society, that, that are the core foundations of 
how we live in this world with each other. And so since we're focusing on systems and all these different systems, mainly monetary systems and governmental systems and education systems, since these are, at least in my opinion, the most important systems that we live in, it, we really need to assess these things as a system. And we need to look at these systems and see what may be wrong with them, what some other options are, what are some trends from the perspective of systems theory, not any specific aspect, but looking into many aspects from a more broad view. So we're going to start today's episode specifically talking about the morality of government. And this will be a more subjective episode, I guess, because technically morality is something that many would argue cannot be objectively determined. But I, I think that most of what I will cover here today is pretty universal. I'll give it probably a 98 to 99% coverage of most people in modern society would probably agree with most of the at least the moral principles that I will be discussing. You may not agree on the conclusions I come to, but, you know, I think you probably will. It's fairly straightforward, fairly objective, and that's what we're going to focus on today. So we'll talk about things like taxation. We'll get into coercion and slavery. We'll talk about what is freedom, what is ownership. We'll touch on fiat money. We will touch on war and talk about the voluntary or involuntary aspects of government, and that will wrap up today's episode. And like I said, today is more of the subjective view, since it is the moral perspective. The following episode is going to be more on effectiveness and efficiency, so things that are very objective and measurable and not quite as fluid as making a moral argument about government. And that's where we're going. So let's go ahead and just start off with the very first thing, and that would be taxation. And I will start off with the statement that taxation is theft. And I say that fairly objectively. I guess we should technically start off with a definition. I don't like starting with definitions, but I guess it's practical and applicable here. So let's just get it out of the way. Theft in law, a general term covering a variety of specific types of stealing, including the crimes of larceny, robbery, and burglary. So this next sentence is what actually covers what we're talking about here. Theft is defined as the physical removal of an object that is capable of being stolen without the consent of the owner and with the intention of depriving the owner of it permanently. So that is theft. It is physically removing something from someone else without their consent with the intention of not giving it back to them. So let's look at taxation. What is taxation? Taxation is the imposition of compulsory levies on individuals or entities by governments. So it is the imposition of compulsory levies. And that means that the government is forcibly taking money from its citizens, period. And that there is no option, there is no choice, and it is done by a government. That is taxation. 
And so when we looked at what is theft, it is taking something from somebody without their consent. What is taxation? Taking money from somebody without requiring their consent. Um, I guess the only difference would be technically someone could consent to taxation. And I guess I would argue that technically someone could consent to any other type of theft. What if a homeless man pulls out a gun and says, give me $20? Well, I could give them that $20 and they stole it from me and then I walk away sad. I could also say, man, this guy really needs 20 bucks. It's no big deal to me. Here, here's 20 bucks. I consent to this. I am okay with that. Take my $20. I'll give it to you. I'm not really doing this just because you're holding a gun to my face. I'm doing this because you are obviously desperately in need of money. So I consent to this. So technically, you could consent to that, but in reality, it's still theft, technically. And so when we look at taxation, it's the same way. Technically, people could consent to paying taxes, but really, no one has a choice. It is forced upon everybody, and it doesn't really matter how you feel about it, or what you think about it, or what you really want to do. The government will take your money, with or without your consent and they do not plan on giving that money back to you. Therefore, it fits the definition of theft. I guess I need to at least address some of the arguments against this, even though it's fairly straightforward and clear. There are arguments that, well, the government is giving people things. So the government is building roads and providing education, providing health care and retirement and a social safety net, they are providing things for you with this money they take from you. So basically, it's for a good cause, and it is giving you something. I got in a bit of an argument on Twitter, didn't really get much response, and they deleted the tweet after that, but they were saying that taxation is theft is an argument that they didn't really understand, they thought it was ridiculous, and they made the point that, well, when has a robber ever given me education and roads and all these things that the government provides. And that was their argument for why taxation is theft didn't really make any sense to them. Well, even if I grant you that the government is using my money effectively and efficiently and providing me with services equal to the value of the money they are taking from me, even if I grant you all that, which is very hard to do, but let's just do it for the sake of argument. Let's give you all that and say that it is technically worth it and it is a good cause. Well, that still doesn't defeat the argument of taxation is theft. It is just saying that this theft is good and necessary. It is not disputing whether or not taxation is theft. Taxation is theft because money is being taken from somebody without their consent. That is theft. So, even if you argue that, hey, it's for a good cause, it's for the good of society, they're giving you things in return, yeah, it's still theft. So, regardless of the why, regardless of what they do with it, it's still stealing. If I take $20 from you at gunpoint, well, let's not even say at gunpoint. Let's say I just come up to you and I say, give me $20. Well, you'll probably say, uh, no, why do you want $20? And I tell you that it doesn't matter. I am going to get your money, and I flash a gun at my hip. 
and you're like, well, you know, 20 bucks. Yeah, I should probably give this to this guy. He's kind of crazy, obviously. And so you give me $20. Well, you know, technically I didn't hold a gun to your head, but you know, it's under the threat of violence. If you would have not done so, then I may have pulled out that gun. I may have just taken it from you. That's the use of force. So I stole your $20. Now let's say I then take that $20 and I find a homeless person. I give them the use at least of my riding lawnmower and I let them use that to mow your yard. And so I pay this homeless homeless man $20 and he mows your yard. Well, technically I am providing a service for you. I am benefiting this homeless man by giving him some work and the ability to earn some money. And so why would you complain? You know, I did take your money, but I provided you with a service, a useful, valuable service. And I helped someone in the process. So isn't that a good thing? Well, even if you say it is a good thing, it's still theft. I still stole that $20 from you. And that's the point. And really, with the government, it's the same way. If I choose not to pay my taxes, I, I could do that. But then I am going to get contacted by the IRS. They're going to ask for their money. If I tell them, well, no, that's robbery. And, you know, I'm not going to submit to your threats. And I am not going to allow you to steal from me. Well, they're probably going to send the police after me and issue a warrant for my arrest for tax evasion. That would likely happen. And then if they show up at my house and demand either my money or that they put me in jail and I just say, no, I'm not going to allow you to steal my stuff, and I'm not going to allow you to lock me up and then forcibly steal my stuff, that's wrong, immoral, I'm not going to submit to that, I just about guarantee you the cops will use force to arrest me. And if I resist that force, then I very well may be held at gunpoint and dragged into a cop car. So even though technically when a government... Uh, issues taxes on its citizens, they are not literally holding a gun to your head and saying, pay us this tax money. That is the implied threat. And if you follow it to its logical conclusion, saying no means that they will take it from you forcefully. And that's just it. So I think that's as much as we really need to do about taxation is theft. That should fairly prove the point that it is theft. And my argument would be that most people say that theft is immoral. It is not a moral thing to do, to steal from somebody, to take things from somebody. Regardless of what you do with it, it's just wrong. It's immoral. So that's issue number one. Issue number two is another one that I will do a definition for, because I guess that technically helps, and that would be slavery. Now, I'm not talking about the slavery that is usually discussed where African slaves were used in colonial America. Now, there have been all different types of slavery that have existed all through the ages of all different types. Some of it, most of it, has been people of a certain nationality or ethnicity that basically enslaved themselves. And then there was a time period where that kind of shifted and it went into the type of slavery that we think of stereotypically. But slavery in and of itself is not that. It's kind of like government in and of itself is not democracy. 
it's a lot more than that. There's a lot more to it. There's a lot more options there. So let me just read the legal definition of slavery. A slave is a person owned by someone, and slavery is the state of being under the control of someone where a person is forced to work for another. So for that first aspect of a person being owned, we're going to talk about ownership after this. So let's save that for that next section. But let's talk about being forced to work for another. And that is what slavery is. You're forced to work for the benefit of somebody else. Now, let's pair this with taxation, because that's the most obvious example here. Now, the government does take your money, whether you like it or not. We've discussed this. And what do they do with it? Well, let's give them the benefit of the doubt and say they use it for the good of society. Now, society includes you, but it also includes many other people. Let's look at this logically. Where did you get this money that the government is taking from you in the form of taxation? Well, you worked for it. You performed some sort of labor or service or something, and someone gave you money, usually. Now, there are exceptions, and we're not going to get into that right here. That would just expand this way too much. But for the 99% of the time, most of your money that you get that you're taxed on comes from you working for it. You have a job, and you get paid at your job, and then the government takes a portion of that paycheck. Now, calculations vary depending on what all you look at and what you include. If you're including things like sales tax and income tax and property tax and inflation and basically all the different things, then the estimates are that on average, in America at least, the government takes roughly 40% of your income. But again, let's be generous. I try to be generous with all of these arguments. And so let's be generous and say that the government only takes 20% of your income. That's not all that much. That's fairly low rate. That's not much more than just regular income tax. But let's say that's all the government takes from you is 20% of the money you earn from your job, from your labor, from your work. So with that in mind, let's start with why do you work? Well, typically, we work in order to get money, and we do this in order to live the lifestyle we want to live. We want a house. We usually want some sort of transportation. We usually want to eat. We need food. We want things. We're a very materialistic culture, so we want things. We want toys. We want games. We want clothes. We want all these different kinds of things. So we work in order to buy things for ourselves things that we want and things that we need. That is why we are working, for the benefit of ourselves and our families. Well, what happens when the government takes 20% of this money that I'm working for? Let's put this in terms of a time frame. So let's say you are working 40 hours a week. Well, 20% of 40 hours a week would be eight hours. So that is one day out of the week. So let's say Friday, that's a good day, the end of the week, the last day of the week. So basically, you are working on Friday for the benefit of somebody else, not the benefit of you, because the government is taking all of the money that you make on Friday. You get all the money that you earn Monday through Thursday, but on Friday, you still have to work, and you still have to put in that eight, that eight hours to get your 40 hours a weekend and get your full paycheck, but the government's just going to take that from you, that 
is, you know, theft. We've talked about that. But what are they taking that for? Going back to what I said earlier, they're taking that for the benefit of others, the benefit of society as a whole. And so what is this? This means that you are forced to work on Friday for the benefit of somebody else. That is the definition of slavery that I just read, being forced to work for the benefit of somebody else. And that's what you're doing when you are working and the government is stealing your money. They are forcing you to work for the benefit of somebody else. Now, yes, you could just work Monday through Thursday, and then you wouldn't have that day on Friday that you are giving completely to the government and working for somebody else. But that doesn't really count because then they're just going to take 20% of the income that you make Monday through Thursday. The Friday example is just one to make it easy. It doesn't really matter how much you work. You could only work 10 hours a week and 20% of that work you performed would be done for the benefit of somebody else. So arguably, you are somewhere between 20% to 50% a slave of the government, by definition, at least. And I believe that's a fairly objective definition. And so I think personally, and I think you probably would agree that slavery is immoral, that it is immoral to force somebody to work for somebody else's benefit and to force them to work and then steal the product of their labor and the money or material that they get from that work. That would be immoral. So that would be point number two on immorality within just the system of government that we live under in our modern times. So what about... Now, there are a few other aspects that kind of play into this. I chose the most obvious and the biggest one, and that would be stealing your money and forcing you to work, because it really fits so well with the definition of slavery. But also, you are forced into some other things. You are forced to obey the preferences of others, the will of the masses, if you live in some sort of democracy. But even if you live within a totalitarian regime or communism, you are still forced to obey the preferences of others, whether it be the majority of your society or just a small group of people in charge, quote, the government. And they will determine what laws and regulations and preferences you are going to be subject to. And there's really nothing you can do about it. If you're in a democracy, you could vote, and we can pretend like that's going to make a difference. But in all reality, it doesn't really matter how you vote, because either you're with the majority or you're not. Either way, the views of the majority will get imposed on you. If you're not in a democracy or not in one that really represents its citizens fully, then it's basically still the same thing. There are people on the top that determine how your country will be structured and what rules you will live by, what the laws of the land are, and that will be forced upon you. That is slavery, when you're forced to work under the preferences and rules of somebody else. So, yes, maybe you're still just half a slave, maybe 50% of a slave, because you do have a vote. But if you actually add up the percentage of how much your vote counts in a country, I didn't do the math here, but I'd be willing to bet that one in 370 million-ish people in America 
that that percentage is fairly low as far as the impact that my vote has on the laws of the land. Let's say 0.00000001, maybe. I'm just guessing. Total guess. I have no idea. I'm not going to do the math because it's really pointless. You get the point that one vote out of 300 and something, almost 400 million people, what's the percentage that I have control over the laws of my land? Well, very, very low. So what is the percentage that I am a slave to somebody else's dictates as for what the laws of the land will be? That would be very, very high. So again, slavery is a spectrum, let's say but you're kind of on the side of the spectrum you probably don't want to be on. Now, what are some other things we are forced to do? We are forced to set aside claims of harm and damages at times. So even though someone might steal from me, for example, let's say armed robbery, I do not have the ability to choose what the punishment will be for that criminal. Even though they robbed me, I am the victim, they are the criminal, we were really the only two parties involved here, I still have no say in what happens to this criminal. Not only that, but I am not allowed to directly do anything about it. Someone steals a TV out of my house, and I'm coming home right as they're walking out the door and leaving, and they are driving away in their car, Well, even if I see their car, I see the person, I know who that person is, and I know where they live, I am not allowed to go inside, probably arm myself, get in my car, then drive to that person's house, force my way into their home, and take my TV back, even though it is my TV, and they did steal it from me, and again, we are the only two parties involved in this activity, I'm not allowed to take that into my own hands. Now, that's not necessarily vigilante justice. That's just basically getting my rightful property back from someone that took it from me. That's fairly simple, but we do have to set aside these claims of damages, of harm, of crime, and there's really nothing you can do about it. You have to submit this to the system. The governmental court system decides how these things are handled. The government police are the ones that deal with apprehending somebody, and detectives that are employed by the government are the ones who investigate the crime and determine what all is involved, and you or I really have no say-so in the matter. It gets handed over to the system. So... If I am not allowed to deal with a crime that occurred to me on my own, then that right is being taken from me by somebody else. And that is just one more aspect where I am not free to exercise my rights or defend my rights or get my property back or whatever the case may be. That is something that is taken from me and somebody else has complete control over those things. Not only that, but somebody else has complete control over my property, over many of my actions, over all forms of justice, even in things that just directly involve me and one other person. And so do I really have a whole lot of freedom here and control over my own stuff and things that happen to me personally in my life? Well, not really. My control over these things and my freedom in these areas is very limited. I will get into ownership next, but 
yeah, we don't really own most of the stuff that we have. We don't have the ability to pursue any crimes against us. We are being forced to work for the benefit of other people. And we are being forced to obey the will and the preferences of, again, other people with very little say-so in the matter. So are we free or does this fit in with the definition of slavery? Well, by definition, this is slavery. So you can argue the semantics of that and how much we are slaves and what the percentage ratio is. But yes, to an extent, we are slaves. But don't be too depressed. At least you do get a say-so in who your masters are and what some of the rules of your confinement are. And you are allowed to keep a, a portion of the product of your labors, the majority of it at least, or maybe half, depending on how you calculate taxation. But yeah, so it's not completely horrible and bad. You are not 100% a slave. So yeah, there is a bright side to this. But again, I would say that slavery, to any extent, is immoral. Let's move on and get into ownership. Now, ownership is one that it's a bit lacking when it comes to definitions. I searched around for a good definition many different places. Most of them are all circular. Ownership is the act of owning something. And if you are a owner, you are someone who has ownership over something. And basically, it just is a big circle, and it's hard to find definitions that are any different. But I found uh, one that's kind of different and has a few other aspects here. We've got, number one, the state or fact of being an owner. And that was my example. That's the main definition. So not helpful at all. How about the act of having and controlling property? No, that one's better. So you have property and you control it. That is ownership. I like that better. Let's go with the final one that I found. That is the relation of an owner to the thing possessed. Possession with the right to transfer possession to others. So it's not only the relation that someone has with their possession, but that possession has to be something that they have the right to transfer ownership to somebody else and that is within their control now the two things that we got out of this is that you possess something and you control it you have to have control over this thing in order to own it and you have to have the ability to give ownership of that thing to somebody else you have to be in control of who has ownership of this item so if i own a book then that means that not only is it in my possession, but I have complete control over it. No one else can magically make it disappear from my hands and appear into their hands, but rather it is mine and I control it. Not only do I control it physically and have it physically, but I have the ability, if I so desire, to give that book to somebody else and allow them to be the owner. And that is my decision because I own it, I control it, and I can transfer that control and that ownership and that possession to somebody else. So those are some aspects of ownership. I would argue that there are more aspects than this. The things that I came up with were that you have to be able to do what you wish with an item if you own it. It is your choice to change it, to destroy it, to share it, 
to sell it, to give it away, to create something with it, to express something with your owned item or possession or thought even. Ownership can be of property and usually is, but you can also have ownership over your own expression, over your own actions. You can own more than just physical property, but we'll stick mainly with physical property here because that is a lot easier to deal with and much more common. So with that, again, I argue that in order to own something, you have to not only have control of it, like the definitions said, and be able to transfer ownership to somebody else, but also you, if you own it, you then have the ability to do whatever you want with it because it's yours and you own it. And so that is really where we run into a lot of problems. So let's talk about physical things. Let's talk about some of the biggest things in our lives. What about your house? Now, do you really own your house? Let's look at these definitions here. So you are in possession of your house. And let's just say that your house is completely paid off. You don't owe any money on it as far as a loan or anything. You have the title to your house. Legally, you own it. So if you are just saying that ownership is a legal term, then what ownership entails is just determined by your government. And that's it. That's that's where it ends. There's no argument there. But if you are talking about ownership in an overall view that is not subjective to a government, but more of an objective definition, then we have to look at the things that I mentioned earlier. So yes, you're in possession of your house. Do you control your house? Or does somebody else have control over your house? Well, I would argue that it's a little mixed here because your local government does have control over your home in many different ways. They control what you can and can't do with it, what you can and can't do on your property, who you can and can't sell it to, and they actually control whether or not you own it. So if you do not pay them a certain amount every year, then they will take your house away from you. They call that property tax. And so if you do not pay your property taxes, then you don't own your house. But I thought I said that your house was completely paid for, and that's part of why you own it. Well, yes, technically it's completely paid for when you purchased it from someone else, but it's not completely paid for in the sense that you still have to pay money on it every single year, or else it gets taken away from you. So do you control it? Eh, kind of, I guess. Uh, What about the other aspect? Can you transfer ownership to somebody else? Is that within your power? Are you the one in control of that ability? Well, no. No, you're not. That is totally up to your local government. There is a lot of paperwork you have to file. There are probably certain criminals or terrorists that you're not allowed to sell property to or be involved in any interactions with. And you do need not only permission to sell your house, and not only do you have to report that, But you also have to pay money to the government when you do so. The government has to get their share in taxes and fees and that sort of thing. And so, no, I can't just take the title to my house and give it to somebody else and they give me $10,000 and we're done. We walk away, everybody's happy. Now, ownership is in the hands of this other person. 
Well, no, that's not the way it works. They would have to report this to the government. They would have to get the deed officially swapped over and notarized. There would be fees and taxes that would have to be paid to the government. There's all kinds of things that has to happen. I am not the one in control, solely at least, in transferring ownership of this possession of my house to somebody else. So again, it's it's mixed because, yes, I can sell my house and I do have some control over that, but I am not the sole person in control of that. So do I fully have that quality of being able to transfer ownership to somebody else? Not fully. So do I own it? Well, by definition, not fully. Fully. It gets very clear when we get into the other aspects I mentioned. Can you change it? Well, if I'm going to do a major remodel on my house, no, I can't just do that on my own. I have to get permission. I have to get a permit. And the government is involved. Well, can I destroy it? Can I just tear it down? Well, no, not just by yourself. You've, again, got to get a permit. You've got to pay a fee. You've got to get permission. Okay, well, what about sharing it? Can I share it with somebody else? Well, usually that just depends on the regulations in your local area. Many places have regulations on renting and Airbnb and all different kinds of aspects, and you have to make sure that you are doing this within the bounds of the regulations that are forced upon you by your government. So no, you are not in complete control of sharing your house. Can I sell it? Well, we already mentioned that. Yes, you can, but that's not just between you and a buyer the government is involved there as well. Can I create with my property? Well, let's go bigger than the house. Let's just talk about your property in general. What if I want to build another house right next to mine? Can I do that? Well, you can, but again, you have to have permission. You have to get permits. You have to have um, money to pay a fee and all this kind of stuff. So do you really own your house? Well, I guess it depends on how you define ownership, but According to official definitions and according to common sense definitions, uh, no, you don't. So do you own anything else? Well, basically anything of very little value, yes, you can probably officially own 100%. Even though you did pay taxes in order to own that thing, you can't just buy it from somebody just between you and them. Uh, Yeah, so again, it depends on definition because you are paying sales tax on buying a pack of gum. So yes, you own that pack of gum and you can destroy it and you can use it however you wish as long as you're not vandalizing something and then you get into regulations. But overall, you own that pack of gum by most of the definition. However, can you transfer ownership of that, which was one of the main definitions, the official definitions at least? Well, not without getting the government involved and paying your one cent worth of sales tax. So even the tiniest little things, there is at least a degree of ownership or control that is taken away from you when it comes to owning things of any different kind. What about things that aren't things? What if I have information about somebody and I would like to do something with this information that I own? Well, Am I allowed to sell this information? No, that is called bribery. And if I have compromising information on a politician, that politician might prefer 
to give me a certain amount of money in order for me not to release this information. Now, it's information that I didn't steal. I wasn't like sneaking around and breaking into their home and taking pictures of them in their private areas. That's not the way it was. I happened upon this information in a perfectly legal and normal way, and it just happened to come into my possession, and so I have it. I own it. But am I allowed to do anything with it? And the answer would be no. So do I own it? I mean, yes, I do. It's information. Like, I have it. It's mine. But I can't do what I want with it. So do I own my own actions in relation to this information? Well, no, not really. What about speech? Free speech is a really big deal. But depending on how you define ownership of your own words, you are not always allowed to say certain things in certain places and things like this. So do you really own your ideas and your expression of those ideas? Well, again, to a degree. What about things like your body? How about prostitution? Well, what if I willingly and voluntarily want to have an arrangement where I am involved in prostitution activities with somebody else and they give me money for it? That is something just between me and one other person, and I do own my body. I think we can all at least agree on this, that we should own our own bodies and the actions we do with them, but I'm actually not allowed to do that. Even though I own my body and they own their body, we're not allowed to combine bodies. That is illegal. And so do we really own ourselves completely? Well, no, not completely. And you could make the same argument for drugs. What if I want to smoke a joint and that's something that I really want to do and it's my body and I can put whatever I want into it and as long as it doesn't cause me to cause harm to somebody else, then I'm not committing any crime, any real crime at least. It's a victimless crime. But I am committing a victimless crime, a crime against the state, and I will be arrested for that and thrown into jail. So do I really own my body and what I do with it? Well, again, no, not completely. It's pretty obvious you could apply this to guns as well and weapons that are highly regulated and you are not allowed to do many different things with them. But let's go even more broad. How about your skills and your services and your labor? Are you allowed to, let's say install some outlets and do some electrical work on somebody else's house? Well, no, not unless you pay for a license and you have some sort of permit for that. So can you do it? Do you own these skills and these abilities that you have and your labor as a service? Well, again, not completely. And so it's kind of a tricky issue. You can't really participate in trade outside of government control and payment. Just period. It doesn't matter what it is. You can't participate in it. And so if you're not able to do all the actions you want to do, those are highly restricted. You are not able to do things with your physical property that you want to do. You are highly restricted and regulated on what you do with the things you own. And somebody else has 
control over much of what you, quote, own, do you really own it? And no, by definition, you don't. If you do not have control over that thing and you do not have the ability to pass ownership to somebody else, that is not within your control either, then by definition, you don't own it according to the definition. So you could define it different ways, sure, and then you can own it. Yeah, let's say it's just a legal term. Then then just change the law, and then you can define it however you want. But if you define it the way that I have found actual definitions for, or if you use the common sense approach, the common sense definition would be if you own something, then you can do whatever you want with it as long as it doesn't affect somebody else. But you can't do that either. So again, do you own something? Well, I would argue no, not really. Why? Because of the government. This is an episode on the government, and the government is the one who steps in on all of these issues and keeps you from being able to own things. Now, I would argue that freedom is ownership, that if you can own things, then you are free. If you cannot own things, then you are not free because you're not free to do what you want with yourself and with the things that you, quote, own. So this is point three and the argument, the moral argument against government that we don't actually own the things that we own and that is immoral. We have a right to own our possessions. We have a right to own ourselves, our bodies, our lives, our services, our whatever, us. We own ourselves, but we really don't if you are subject to a modern government. So I am arguing that that is immoral. That's wrong. Now, let's move on to the next bit, and that would be fiat money. Now, I've talked a lot about fiat money and talked about central banks and specifically the Federal Reserve System and fractional reserve banking and all this stuff. So I'm not going to rehash all of these things. I think it's very clear that these things are immoral. They're wrong. But let's just give some brief examples here. The best and clearest one would be inflation. So in any modern government, the government has control over their monetary system. We have fiat money that is only backed by a government promise. It's not backed by anything else of value. The government can create it out of thin air and just make it magically appear. And all of a sudden, wow, there's more money. Wonderful. And it is just completely controlled by a government. It is fiat money. Now, with this, the government can create money out of nothing. And we call this inflation. They are inflating the money supply. And what happens is then you have inflation in the value of that currency as well. So when you have more of the currency out there, then every single unit of the currency is worth less and less, the more units that are created and magically appear in the economy. And so what is happening is that value is being taken from units of that currency. So let's say dollars to make this easy. So as the government just creates a billion dollars out of thin air, then every dollar that circulates in the economy is worth less than it was before that billion dollars was created because there's much more of it and there's not much more of anything to back it up. It's not like there's a billion dollars worth of gold that is found or bought and so now we're going to make a million dollars backed by this gold. No, that doesn't exist. 
It's not like there's all of a sudden a billion dollars worth of extra government promises and guarantees that this money is worth something because the government already promises and guarantees that they back the currency. You can't just multiply that by a billion. That just doesn't work. So no, they just create money out of thin air. This lowers the value of every dollar in circulation. And so it's not just the billion dollars that are created that are now worth less. It's every single dollar owned, period, is worth less. So me being an individual that is working in a job and I perform labor during the day and I get paid for it, my paycheck is actually worth less because the government is creating money out of thin air. I have no control over that. That is not something within my control. That is not something that I desire. That is not something that I have consented to. So just by the structure and the system of fiat money, value is being robbed from all of the citizens without their consent. And again, kind of going back to the same theories of taxation as theft, it's very similar here where any modern government today has a fiat monetary system, period. And they all do inflate their currencies. And so they are all robbing value from their citizens and anybody that holds their currency, even if they're not a citizen. So... I am arguing that that is immoral, and I think that's pretty clear. If you are taking value from somebody without their consent and without, let's say, representation on at least many accounts, then that is wrong. That's, again, theft. So we could say inflation is theft as well. But I will just do more broadly that the fiat monetary system, fiat money as a whole, is an immoral system. We could argue that fractional reserve banking is completely immoral. The act of creating money out of nothing. Again, I put $100 into the bank. Depending on the type of account I deposit in, into, the bank doesn't even have to keep any of it. They don't have to keep reserves on many different types of accounts, and they can just take my $100 and give it to somebody else. But they will still say that they have my $100, but my $100 went to somebody else who then pays for something and it gets deposited into another bank account. That bank creates $100 that he gives to somebody else, and that bank still credits the other person's account with that $100. So basically, $100 just keeps on getting created by banks. Now, sometimes, depending on the type of account, again, the bank might have to hold 10% of that money in reserve. So they hold back 10 bucks and only loan out 90 and this might happen quite a few times, or it might be that, you know, every 10 times they have to hold reserves, or it might be every time they have to hold reserves. It really just depends on the type of account and the laws and the countries you live in. But basically, the bank is just creating money. Now, again, when money is created out of nothing, then number one, that has the issues I discussed a little bit earlier. But number two, the bank is saying that they have my $100, but they don't. And so if they are holding my $100 and say I have $100 in my account, but they gave it to somebody else, I would argue that is immoral. They're not doing what they say they're going to do. Now, it could be argued that the bank does tell you that 
your money will be used to invest in another way or given out in another way. And in exchange, oftentimes they will pay you a very small amount of interest for the money you deposit at their bank. So technically they are telling you that they are not completely holding your money. But the problem here is that if this were a legitimate and moral system, then even though I deposit $100 and they give that $100 to somebody else, then when I come back to get my $100, that $100 actually has to come from somewhere. It has to be real money that probably somebody else deposited. However, the problem is that much of the money that is being accounted for that digitally exists in accounts under a certain bank just doesn't exist, period. It's just fake. It's magically created money, I guess. And so that is, in my opinion, not moral because a bank may have, let's say, a million dollars in reserves. They actually have a million dollars. People have deposited money and they have kept a million dollars of it. But according to the accounts on their books, they have a billion dollars because there is a billion dollars worth of money that people have given them and that they say is in those people's accounts. So if someone comes and gets their money out, more than likely that money is not coming out of a physical stash that they kept from different customers when they deposited their money, but rather more than likely the money that I get from the bank comes from money that somebody else got from some other bank that did not hold any reserves and just created out of thin air. And then that money got deposited into my bank and therefore that's what the bank is holding and then they give it to me. And so it's not like when I take $100 in cash and give it to the bank that they actually keep, let's say, $10 of that in cash at the bank, and then they do that for every customer that comes in. And so then when someone comes in to withdraw money, they actually get some of that money that they have hoarded aside from all of their customers' deposits and then give that back out. That's not really the way it works, and especially in this digital age, it's a lot of just moving ones and zeros. And so the fractional reserve banking system is also inflating the money supply by minimum of 90%, roughly. Many banks do hold 10% in reserves, sometimes less. Again, depending on the type of account you are depositing into, they may not be required to hold any in reserves. But let's say they hold 10% in general. Well, that means that 90% of the money that comes out of there is not backed by anything. Not only is it fiat money that just by in and of itself is not backed by anything, but even the fiat money that they are giving to people is not backed by other fiat money. It's not that there actually is $100 sitting in a vault, and so they are giving me $100 from that. It's that they just created $100. It's not even backed by fiat, which isn't backed by anything already. And yeah, let's end this rabbit trail because it just keeps going. But the point is that fiat money, for many reasons, would be immoral, and theft through inflation. The fractional reserve banking system in general is immoral because it is creating money that is not backed by anything or is only backed by a very small portion of what they are giving out. 
And so, so let's move on to the next point. The next point was going to be war. So war, at some level, can be considered moral. And I would say that it could be argued that if someone is fighting a war in self-defense or for self-preservation, that that is a moral thing to do. Now, plenty of people would argue with that and say that it's still immoral, but it at least can be argued and argued well, and there's plenty to back up that perspective that war in defense is perfectly moral. It's not, it's at least not immoral. Maybe it's just neutral when it comes to morality, but the point is that it's not immoral. What I am focusing on is modern warfare, the wars that actually exist today and have been going on for the past hundred years. Now, I've given plenty examples of this, especially in the corruption and conspiracy section that we did, that series, a few series ago, right before Agorism. And with that, you should have plenty of examples of what I'm talking about here, but it's mainly wars that occur under false pretenses. So let's say maybe sending ground troops to Vietnam, or weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, or, yeah, take your pick. Pretty much any modern war has been started under false pretenses. That is not defense. That is a lie. That is a war being fought based on lies, which I would argue at least is immoral. How about the initiation of force in general? We are not defending ourselves, but rather we are initiating force on another country. And that would be arguably immoral, yes. And so if you are defending yourself from another country, then yes, we can make some arguments there. But if you're not defending yourself and you are the aggressor and you are the one initiating force, then by many standards, that would be immoral as well. How about killing individuals for the causes of the state? So it's not that I, maybe I am a soldier, but it's not that me as a soldier has a problem with that man who's a soldier for another country. And so I kill him because I have something against him and I am carrying out my own will. No, it's that the state has some sort of political agenda or economic agenda, and he tells me to kill this person. Is it because that person is bad? Well, no, it's just because that person is following the causes of their state, and I am following the causes of my state, and so we're going to kill each other. And that's moral? That I would argue, no, that that is still not moral. Now, if we are fighting wars not for the purposes of defense, and soldiers are fighting and killing each other not because they actually have any problems whatsoever with each other, then why are we fighting these wars? What's actually going on? Well, I already mentioned that governments have political ambitions and economic ambitions. It's usually politics and power. That's kind of the main thing. We have also discussed before on the podcast the military-industrial complex and the incentives that come from that and government defense contracts and things like this. Those are very influential and apply a lot of pressure to these types of things when it comes to war. But on a broader level, more of a macro view, this is something that's been going on for thousands of years. As long as we have a historical record of societies, 
there has been human sacrifice of one type or another. It has been religious in many examples where people would be sacrificed to the gods. Sometimes it would be as a scapegoat for a society where a crime is committed, no one really knows who did it, so we are going to find somebody that we think might have done it, and we'll go ahead and kill that person, and it'll make everybody else feel better because we feel like justice has been served. We've done something. We can't just let this go unsolved. That would be horrible. We have to do something. And so human sacrifice, there's many different examples, many different ways that have existed through many different societies over the centuries. And I would argue that modern warfare is our current modern day example of human sacrifice. It is governments that are sacrificing its citizens in the form of soldiers for their own ambitions, their own goals and also to keep society under control, pretty much. So on one hand, the government has to prove that it is defending its citizens and that it is enacting justice for any injustices that exist in its country or in the world in many cases, at least when it comes to America. We are the world police. And so... If a government needs to justify its existence as a defender and as someone who is in control of justice, then that has to be seen. There has to be a clear example of that. If the government isn't actually doing anything and it's not actually defending its citizens, then its citizens probably look at it and say, well, why are you here as my defender if you're not defending me? Well, if there is a war going on and the government is sending people and sacrificing people to that war, we can say, oh man, thousands of soldiers have died this year defending our country from these terrorists in the Middle East. Well, kind of. Number one, most of these terrorists exist because either we killed their family or their close relatives and so they are seeking revenge, or it was a group that we consider to be the moderate rebels in some sort of conflict that was going on, and we funded them and armed them and trained them to fight another one of our enemies. And then when they either destroyed that enemy or usually took our money and guns and took care of whatever their own ambitions and goals were, then they end up being a terrorist organization like they were all along, but we just pretended like they weren't so that we could give them money and hope they would fight our enemies. Yeah, basically, we create these situations around the world, and then we step in and deal with these situations. So if the government is creating a problem, and then the government is solving that problem, is any of that actually defense or justice or necessary? Uh, I would argue no. I would say it would be immoral for them to start that problem to begin with. For the U.S. government to fund and arm and train al-Qaeda fighters, that is immoral. That is wrong. Al-Qaeda was actually our enemy and declared an enemy of the state. And then we arm them and fund them and train them. So, yes, I would argue by the government's own recognitions here that that would be immoral. And just as a whole... What the government is doing is satisfying the demands of its society for revenge, for retribution, for retaliation. 
Society needs a scapegoat. It is cathartic for the people. If something like 9-11 happens and thousands of innocent people die, society demands that other people die as a result, that we go and we get revenge and that we serve justice and that we kill and slaughter anybody responsible. That is what society demands. If the government did not do anything about it, and they kind of just sat back and said, well, we're going to investigate this and see what's going on, and we're going to find the few people that we can prove were associated with this and punish them and try to convict them in an international court. If the government said that, then people would not accept that. That is not good enough, according to most people in society. The people need an example of justice and their version of justice is that people die period it's that we go and we kill the people that are responsible now does it matter if the people are really responsible no not really it just matters that the people believe that certain people were responsible it doesn't matter if they actually were or not the government's in the clear as long as people believe that justice was served as long as people have their scapegoat that is all they need. So even though Saudi Arabia was the country most responsible for helping the terrorists um, for 9-11, it doesn't really matter. We, we don't have to touch Saudi Arabia. We don't have to even admit that they had anything to do with it. We can just classify that information. Then when it becomes declassified a few years later, we just, I guess, kind of ignore it. And the people already have had their scapegoat, so they don't care. I, I don't know. doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. But the point is that there was a war after 9-11, and that happened as a direct result of 9-11, and people felt better about it. That was cathartic for society. That satisfied their demands for revenge and retribution and retaliation. The argument, though, that I am making here is that thousands of lives were sacrificed. People died for this, and most of the people that died had absolutely nothing to do with these terrorist attacks. And so is that moral? I would argue no. I would say that if you actually go after the people who were responsible and the individuals who were actually responsible for this, then you could make a very good case that that is moral or at least neutral when it comes to morality. But when you are just invading an entire country using the fact that terrorists from the organization that perpetrated 9-11 resided and were hiding in a country in one location, one group of them, and so we're just going to invade the entire country because of that. Well, no, that doesn't really work out. I couldn't say that that's moral. And thousands of people are going to die because of this, both on the American side and on the foreign government side. And so, yes, some of those people were responsible to some extent. Some of those people maybe deserve to die, depending on how you would rate that personally. But many of them did not. And many of them had nothing to do with it. So what about those people that died? Is it moral for them to die? Did they have to die? Is there a good reason for them to die? Or is that just another version of human sacrifice to satisfy the demands of society, to keep the government in control, to keep the military-industrial complex chugging along? 
all these other things. And so my argument is just that in general, the way modern wars exist and modern warfare exists, it is immoral. If wars are started based on lies, if lives are sacrificed for reasons other than defense and justice, then the government is killing people and sending their own people to die, sacrificing human beings for the sake of their own ambitions, for politics, for power, for money, for economics. These are not things worth human sacrifice. You cannot morally sacrifice a human being's life for the sake of politics. That does not play out under almost anybody's versions of morality. Even people that would say to go ahead and do it would probably still say, yes, it's immoral, but that's how we get what we want kind of a thing. And so I am arguing that war is another example of governments, modern governments, being immoral. So I'm just going to wrap it up there. That covers the at least the most obvious cases to me and the ones that stand out as kind of pretty big deals, things like taxation, slavery, ownership and freedom, fiat money, war. These are the biggest things that governments are in control of and have a lot of power in and ways that they interact and interfere with citizens, with us as individuals. And so these are very good examples, in my opinion, to point out and to expand on and explain. And so I at least believe that I have made a good case for all of these. But what I can say is that since all of these exist in every modern government, at least that I can think of and that I've come across, if you have any others, then feel free to share them with me. If there's a government that is not involved in these things, then let me know. I'd be very interested in that. But I do not think that it exists. And so, if all of these are characteristics of modern governments, then even if you disagree with 90% of the things I have said about immoral activity, then that 10% that you may agree on, that, oh, well, yeah, that one thing might be immoral. I can agree with that. Just one thing makes government as a system immoral. So, kind of like the taxation is theft argument, it's not that you can argue that taxation isn't theft. It's just that you can argue that maybe that theft is necessary or good. I am saying that it's the same thing with a modern government. It's not that you can argue that the modern government as a system is moral. It's just that you could argue that the modern government as a system is necessary or overall good. And yeah, you can take that where you want, and I will take that different places in the upcoming episodes. We will get into those things. But the point is that even if just one of the things I mention as immoral really is immoral, then the system is immoral. You can't have a system with foundational principles that are immoral and then call the system moral. It, that, that doesn't work. The math does not add up. And so this, I believe, fairly clearly demonstrates that government in its modern form as a system is immoral, period. And so that is my argument, my moral argument against government. 
In the next episode, I will get into efficiency and effectiveness. So does a government actually do what it's supposed to do? And when it does do what it's supposed to do, does it do it well or efficiently at all? And so we'll talk about that. And I will argue against government from that perspective. And actually, correct that. The very next episode will be the update episode. And so I'll kind of lay out the entire argument and talk about the outline there and talk about some current events. Uh, I guess I've got to give an Epstein uh, update because that was something I brought up in the previous update. And a lot has happened since then. And things that, yeah, were fairly obvious were going to happen. And yeah, we'll get into that. This episode is long enough and has absolutely nothing to do with Epstein. Well, kind of, actually, when you get into morality and government and politicians and yeah. But we'll talk about that next time. So next time we'll cover some of the current events and updates and where we are in this argument against government in this series. And hopefully you enjoy that. Hopefully you enjoyed this. Feel free to send me an email with any comments or feedback or ideas that you have. I also invite you to follow me on Twitter at FoundationsPC or to go to the website and see the list that I have there for the outline for the podcast season one as a whole, as well as lists of resources and some other things that are there. You can check that out. That might be of interest to you. Also, there is the Patreon page. So if you want to go on there to support this podcast financially, then that would be wonderful. Thank you very much. If that's something you're interested in, whether you do it or not, I still greatly appreciate the thought. But not only that, if you go to the Patreon page, there are some posts that I have made, and some of them are only for patrons, but some of them are open to anybody. And so there's specifically a few about possibilities for season two so you can go in there and kind of see some of the ideas that are there and i'm really not sure if you can comment directly without being a patron or not but if you can't do it right there on the site then just send me an email if you have ideas if you read through that and say hey this sounds really cool or yeah i really hope he doesn't do that or whatever the case may be so feel free to check all that stuff out all of these things should be in the show notes so there are links there and all the information there that's all i have for today so thank you very much for listening thank you very much for your support thank you for leaving a rating those who have thank you for the reviews those who have left those if you have not then please do so but thank you very much for all of you thank you for listening i'm out of here peace thank you for listening goodbye